0: It's a joy to be with you again and to greet you in the name of the Lord. We are gathered here to hear his voice, and we pray that we would, our ears would be opened so that when he speaks, we would be more ready to hear and receive it. I'm going to be struggling a bit today because I don't see the screen on the back. So, if I'm turning my back on you, it's not I'm intent- that I'm intentionally rude. Uh, I just need to know what's happening behind me as well as what's happening in front of me. Can these bones live? I have intentionally echoed the Lord's question to Ezekiel in the face of the very dry bones strewn all over the valley in Ezekiel 37.3. And in my response, like Ezekiel, I wish they could. Can these bones live? But I tossed the ball back into the Lord's court. Oh, Adonai Yahweh, you know. In Ezekiel's case, what followed was a vision of a mighty and miraculous act of God. As Ezekiel called to the Spirit, the breath, the bones came together, and with another prophecy to the Spirit, or the breath, it entered them, and they came alive, a vast host. But not before the Lord told him... Prophesy over these bones, Ezekiel, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Well, I might even, I wish that I could be a catalyst for the kind of renewal that Ezekiel witnessed there on that grand and great valley. I might even wish that the Lord would anoint my lips to declare a direct word from God and energized by the same spirit that inspired the First Testament, it would come alive again for us, the church, today. Lacking his prophetic status and inspiration, I shall turn to the inspired word that God has graciously provided for us in the Scriptures to see what they might have to say on this important subject. I offer my prescription for the revival of three-fourths of the Bible in the form of a series of bullet points, beginning with first. How can this happen? We need to recover Jesus' own disposition toward the First Testament Scriptures. A consideration of this topic alone could fill the entire time allotted to us. But let's begin with Matthew five seventeen to 18. Do you think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, the yod, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the Torah until everything is accomplished. Well, it may be helpful here to see the background of this statement which is embedded in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Commentators on the sermon commonly remind us of the reminiscences of Sinai, the Sinai narrative in Exodus, and they interpret Jesus' role here as that of a second Moses. But in my view, this reflects a very low Christology. As I learned from our Jewish rabbi friends with whom we had gathered to discuss this passage at Wheaton, we meet once a semester with a half a dozen or eight Jewish rabbis, a dozen or so of us faculty at Wheaton. But this one time, they had requested that we read the Sermon on the Mount together. And after one of our guys had given a 10-minute introduction, Christian introduction, to Jesus' address, One of the rabbis presented a Jewish interpretation. I'll never forget the sight and the sound, or lack thereof. At the end of the rabbi's presentation, he stepped back, leaned against the wall, and then asked, who does the person talking think he is? Well, after a moment of awkward silence, he answered his own question. He thinks he's God, and that's why we reject him. To us, this text is blasphemous. This was an eye-opener for me. I am convinced that this Jewish friend had it exactly right. The one who now sat before the people as if enthroned was the same person whose voice the Israelites had heard on Mount Sinai more than a millennium earlier. You have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, the I here is God incarnate. It comes from the lips of the God of Israel and King of heaven and earth. That same person now declares that he has not come to dismantle or abolish the Torah and the prophets, but to fulfill the entire canon of Scripture. Torah, prophets, the Psalms. Here the word translated fulfill is actually ambiguous. It could mean, A, to put the whole thing into effect. No prophet, not even Moses, achieved this. B, to embody its ethic and values perfectly. And C, to declare its full meaning and significance. I can assure you it does not mean to put an end to the Torah and the prophets or to flush them. For Jesus, the canonical assemblage of Torah and prophets represented a fixed, authoritative, permanent, and irrevocable record of the very words of God. What advocates of unhitching the First Testament from Christian faith do is not only foolish, it flies in the face of God's own declarations. What chutzpah, That's a nice Yiddish word. What arrogance! How intent Jesus was to fulfill the entire canon of Scripture is evident in His ministry, especially in the way He grounds everything on prior revelation, graciously revealed to Israel. He often prefaces His statements with comments like, It is written. And He explicitly quotes the Scriptures as authoritative. If we have marinated in Deuteronomy for any length of time, we will recognize that even a familiar text like the Lord's Prayer is steeped in Deuteronomic vocabulary from beginning to end. You can't understand that prayer fully if you haven't lived in Deuteronomy. When we recite that prayer together, as we often do in our church in Wheaton, we express our thoughts in the language of the Torah. Point number one. Second, we need to recover, oops, there were, here we go. We need to recover the apostles' disposition toward the First Testament. In the book of Acts, the apostles lace their speeches with quotations and allusions to the, to the first testament from beginning to then. To them, it was important to demonstrate that the coming of Jesus represents not fixing the first testament, but the climactic answer to the question. Your climactic answer to the question of what God is up to. This is the moment of divine revelation where that is revealed. The record of which is preserved in the First Testament. Paul represents the apostolic perspective in 2 Timothy 3.16, which we must accept in its entirety. You know from from your childhood that you've known the Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, although most of Paul's letters will have been circulating when he penned this, and some of the others as well. What he means here by all scriptures is not his own writings. He has in mind primarily the entire First Testament identified by Jewish people as the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. But what he says about the First Testament is striking. First, They are God-breathed, which means they are inspired, divine literary creations, and life-giving in their effect. This unique expression alludes to Deuteronomy 8.3. People do not live by bread alone, but they live by everything that comes from the mouth of God. Our translations often say every word or every command that comes from the mouth. But it doesn't say that at all in the Hebrew. It says whatever comes from the mouth. Well, what is it that comes out of your mouth most often? It's breath, wind. Most translations render it, I I think, too specifically. It could be words, but it's often simply the breath. But as Moses' Torah addresses remind us, we should certainly not restrict this everything to the command. Uh, Lord's commands, but included are his promises and his declarations of grace. Don't forget those. This is reflected in what I call the Deuteronomic uh, uh, formula for life that occurs repeatedly in the uh, book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 31, he gives the fullest statement. Read that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may... Obey that they may live. Read what? Read this Torah. For what purpose? That they may live. We could turn Paul's questions in Romans 10 backwards and say, how shall they live if they do not obey? How shall they obey if they do not fear? How shall they fear if they do not learn? How shall they learn if they do not hear? And how shall they hear if nobody reads? This is the key. Life depends on it. Second, they are useful, valuable, profitable, effective. The point is, they accomplish the goals for which God gives them. Third, they are effective for teaching instruction. The Greek word here reflects precisely the same semantic range as Hebrew Torah, which we will talk about later which uh, was originally used primarily for the Torah of Moses proclaimed on the plains of Moab and preserved, yes, in the book of Deuteronomy, the most boring book in the Bible for many of us. Fourth, they are effective for refuting error. They are effective correcting faults. They are effective for training in righteousness. Yes, yes. And this is what uh, Moses had in mind in Deuteronomy 6, 20, 16, 20, where he declares the mantra, Sedek, tzedek, tirdof. You just learned a little Hebrew, speaking in tongues here, at prairie. <laughs> righteousness, righteousness, you shall pursue. And finally, they are, they are effect. Whoops, now we're, we're going backwards. Wrong Wrong button. They are effective for creating a godly person, adequate, capable, fit for every good work. This is He's talking about the First Testament. If they originated in the divine breath, they should live and they should energize us and animate us when they enter us. By the continued work of the Holy Spirit, they not only illumine, who not only illumines our minds and makes our heart receptive to the Word, but He energizes us and makes us alive for the work of God. Third, we need to rediscover the disposition of the uh, early post apostolic church fathers toward the First Testament. I'm going to hop, skip, and jump. Uh, through this section, but if you read these fathers, you will find that from beginning to end, their teachings are laced with First Testament texts. They wouldn't imagine teaching their congregations without reference to the First Testament all over the place, and of course, this carries on into the Reformers, John Calvin and Martin Luther, for whom All Scripture was their Scripture. We need to follow the uh, tradition of uh, our our predecessors. Fourth, we need to join the scribal order of Ezra. If there is one verse that has been a theme verse for me, uh, this is probably it. After reviewing Ezra's pedigree, Uh, and his migration to Jerusalem in Ezra 7, 1-9, verse 10 summarizes the commitment that underlay his work for the reconstitution of the community of faith in Jerusalem. Ezra fixed his mind to study the Torah of Yahweh, to apply the Torah of Yahweh, and to teach its ordinances and judgments in Israel. Note both the nature of the commitment and the order of the elements to which he committed himself. All three are required if we would, as Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to present ourselves approved unto God as workmen who handle accurately the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 But this requires deep study involving reading entire compositions aloud so we hear the voice of God in the Scriptures. The Scriptures weren't written with chapter and verse numbers. As Gordon Fee, my good friend, a New Testament scholar, says, first principle of interpretation is get rid of the numbers. These books were written to be heard all at once the whole thing, but we atomize them and take all sorts of liberties by taking them out of context. This involves analytical uh, wrestling with the text. For, this, for us, this is especially needed because we live so far away from the world in which they were written that we need to study deeply. And it involves focused contemplation on what does the text mean to me? This calls for marinating in the text, praying over it, depending on the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, imprint it on our minds, and transform our lives. We do this with New Testament books. Why don't we do it with the First Testament? How can we expect the First Testament Scriptures to come alive for us if we never spend any time there? It won't happen. It's not magic. It's not a pill. Take it and you'll feel better. No, it means living in them. Fifth, we uh, we need to... recognize the unity of all Scripture as a record of God's revelation that climaxes in His incarnation, the ministry, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This means walking with the Emmaus disciples and listening to Jesus as He reflects on His place in God's grand redemptive agenda. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures, Luke 24, 27. And Jesus said to them, this is what I told you, what I was still with you. Everything that was written about me in the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. These cryptic statements by the gospel writer first and then by Jesus himself second have provided grounds for all sorts of illegitimate and foolish typologizing and allegorizing, drowning out the voice of God and obscuring the true message of first testament texts. In Luke 24, 27, the evangelist did not say that all scriptures speak of Christ as the Messiah, but that he explained those texts that spoke of him from all the scriptures. That's the grammar here. Explicitly or implicitly royal messianic texts that Jesus might have had in mind are actually few and far between. Between. And this would exclude entire books like Exodus, Leviticus, Judges, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Esther, and Jonah, which don't talk about the Messiah at all. Ah, but we are not dependent on Messianic texts to recognize the import of Jesus' statements here to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. The New Testament portrayal of Jesus is much more complex than the royal Davidic Messiah. Probably most important, the New Testament also declares that Jesus is the embodiment of the God of Israel, who repeatedly introduced himself by name as Yahweh. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of chesed, emeth, grace, and faithfulness. What a text. This is the message. And in Matthew one twenty one, the angel of the Lord interpreted the significance of Mary's conception. You shall call his... Uh, uh, You shall call his name Jesus, for he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Greek, Jesus, translates Hebrew, Yehoshua, Joshua, which Moses invented. When in the light of the Lord's amazing revelatory signs and wonders in Egypt, climaxing in the Exodus, he changed the name of the scout, you call them spies, spies. They were not KGB or CIA agents. They were scouts. Moses changed the name of this scout who represented Ephraim from Hoshea, which means he saves, which raises the question who? And in the ancient world, they would fill in that blank with the name of their God, whoever he was Baal, Kamosh, Marduk, whoever. In the light of the Exodus, Moses says, no, we are filling in the blank permanently. His name is Yahweh, Yahweh saves. Joshua's name says nothing about Joshua. Did you know that? Joshua was not a savior figure. Where was Joshua when they came out of Egypt? He was there, but he doesn't show up in the story in the Exodus, the deliverance. He wasn't there. God saves, not Joshua. And when they invade the land of Canaan, Joshua doesn't come as a savior. He comes as the aggressor from whom the Canaanites needed salvation. Jesus is not a second Joshua. Another low Christology. Jesus is Yahweh, born of the virgin Mary. Matthew adds his inspired interpretation of this event by applying to Jesus the name Emmanuel. God is with us in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Look, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means in translation, God is with us. In Jesus, God walked the streets of Jerusalem and the roads of Palestine. In Jesus, He ministered to the people and announcing the arrival of His own kingdom. In G- this identification explains why John the Baptist could quote Isaiah 43 when people asked him, "Who are you?" He doesn't say, "I'm Jesus' cousin." He says, I am the voice of one crying in the desert. Prepare the way of. He's quoting Isaiah, which has the divine name Yahweh right there. Our Septuagint translators render it as Kyrios, Lord. Something happens when you change a personal name to a title. John the Baptist is declaring Jesus to be Yahweh, come in the flesh. It's a magnificent moment in Revelation. Well, when Jesus talked to his Emmaus disciples about all the things about himself that were found in the First Testament, what's he talking about? Not only of the royal messianic figure, God is everywhere in the Bible. And when I preach Yahweh, I preach Jesus because he is Yahweh here in the flesh. This discussion has extremely significant implications for how the First Testament speaks to me. When I hear First Testament narrators and prophets speak of Yahweh, the creator of the world, who called Abraham out of the Chaldean Ur to be a blessing to the nations, who rescued Israel from Egypt, who delivered the Can- land of Canaan into Israel's hands, who sent one prophet after another to remind Israel of his presence and provide a point of contact for the history of rebellion a uh, uh, point of contact with him, and who sent Nebuchadnezzar to punish his own people for the history of rebellion against them, who promised to Israel that the judgment would not be the last word, but one day he would rescue Israel from their, their exile and bring them all back. Who's talking? This is Jesus. He's been there all the time. When I read these accounts, I see Jesus, Emmanuel. Jesus is Yahweh, whose voice the people heard from Sinai, the primary character in all the narratives, even Esther, where he's never named. He is the one who pleads with Israel through the prophets. There's no need for cheap and distracting typologizing of characters and objects, which actually drowns out first testament the meaning of First Testament texts in a fathom of human ingenuity, following the paradigm that the Emmaus disciples witnessed in Jesus himself in Luke 24, 27, and 44. When I preach Yahweh, I preach Jesus, the light and hope of the world. Six, we need to rethink our nomenclature the words we use, for the Hebrew Scriptures, both as a whole and in its parts. Well, let's begin with how we refer to the Hebrew Bible, which we generally call the Old Testament. Well, by now you've noticed that so far I try to avoid the expression. Sometimes it slips, the ruts are so deep. And sometimes I use it when I'm referring to other people's views of Scripture. But what we call something matters. Ask the publishers who are trying to sell your books. Ask marketing companies who are trying to help you establish the brand of your company. What you call something matters. So what's wrong with Old Testament? Well, I suppose the word testament is not the primary problem, though we may actually stumble over it. To us, a testament refers fundamentally to the disposition of property by means of a last will and testament, which doesn't get us very far with Old Testament. But that's what diatheke meant in Koine Greek. But this usage occurs only three times in the New Testament. Galatians 3.15, Hebrews 9.16-17, to twice there. Everywhere else, the word is used theologically, diatheke, as a translation of the Hebrew word covenant. Now, a covenant is a contract whereby a relationship that does not exist naturally is created. Or a natural or artificially created relationship that has been broken is now repaired. Have you ever noticed that you didn't have to make, those of you who have kids, you didn't have to make a covenant with your children who were born to you. But our oldest son is adopted. He's not naturally ours, and so we had to go through a specific legal procedure by which he became ours, and he is now as much our son as our biological daughter. That takes a covenant. In one sense, the Septuagint translator's consistent rendering of divine covenants bereith as diatheke works, since the Lord's covenants always involve formal arrangements, establishing or reconstituting his relationship with his covenant partners. Israel isn't naturally God's covenant partner. When my wife Ellen and I got married 53 years ago, yesterday really, we made a covenant. We're not naturally related. I mean, think of it. Why would you give up the comforts of living with your parents and your siblings whom you know and go and live with a stranger? But we did. We made a covenant, and a relationship was established that has just been the joy of my life. However, this sense seems to be represented more naturally with suntheke, joint agreement, which we find only a couple of times in the Bible. Testament is not the big problem, if you remember that testament means covenant. The bigger problem is old. Paul uses the expression old covenant in 2 Corinthians 3.13 when he speaks of the Israelite minds being hardened, for to this day, uh, I, I guess we could, yeah, whoops, now we're back there again. For to this day, uh, they, when they read the old covenant, that same rail remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet, to, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, A veil lies over their hearts. It's interesting that he parallels Old Covenant with reading Moses. It's clear now that Paul was not thinking of the Hebrew Bible as a whole, but more narrowly of the Torah, in which case the Abrahamic and Israelites covenants are all conflated, all under one rubric, or even more narrowly of Deuteronomy. The author of Hebrews does not speak of the Israelite covenant as the old covenant, but as the first covenant. While the covenant that is inaugurated by Christ is the second covenant. I think this nomenclature is actually helpful for us. So I talk about the first covenant and the new covenant, I mean the first testament and the new New testament, or the first testament and the second testament. In our day, when... We worship novelty and despise antiquity. The connotations of old versus new differ significantly. Uh, Whereas old suggests it's obsolete, out of date, passé. New suggests contemporary presence, freshness, and relevance, even though the New Testament is also 2,000 years old. Technically, we should call both the old covenants. By comparison, 1st versus 2nd suggests sequence and stage progression. This is precisely how we should look upon the relationship between the two testaments. Two years ago, when we were at the home of my friend Bruce Winter, I was at their house a week ago in Brisbane, uh, Australia. He was a former warden of Tyndale Library, a noted New Testament scholar. I was encouraged him to, to hear him declare what to him is the first principle of biblical interpretation. Gordon Fee says, get rid of the numbers. Bruce Winter says, tear out one page of your Bible. By this he meant that one white page that separates the First Testament from the New Testament. That misrepresents symbolically the relationship between the two. Those responsible for the canonical order of the New Testament obviously thought of the relationship this way. The genealogy that opens Matthew is cast as a sequel to the genealogies you have in Genesis and in Ruth. The book, uh, this is the book of the generations of Jesus, the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David, wherever. He thinks he's writing another chapter of that ancient story. Read Chris Wright on knowing Jesus through the Old Testament where he has a great discussion of that. To recognize the significance of the First Testament in relation to the New, we should not be looking for Christ as Davidic Messiah on every page. He is not there in that sense, but we should be looking for God and he is constantly there we should be constantly asking what this book and this text contribute to the story that climaxes in Jesus. I call this the Christotelic approach to interpreting the Bible. Now, here's what I, uh, how I view a Christocentric approach. If you have a Christocentric hermeneutic, you expect to find Jesus in every verse. Christ in every verse. But it's not actually that way. Try and find it in the Song of Songs or other books like that. If we look for fingers pointing to Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, they are there, but they're actually few and far between. But if we ask, what is God up to, and how does the record of actions contribute ultimate, to our ultimate understanding of Jesus, the possibilities are not limitless, and the excitement of discovery knows no bounds. He is the climax of Revelation, the climax of history. Earlier events don't all point to him, they all lead there. And you don't actually recognize their significance for him until he arrives, and then you look back and say, ooh, I never saw that before. Now it starts to make sense. Every book has a significant role to play in the grand scheme of redemption. The Hebrew word uh, I mean, the Greek word telek means "end goal." That's the climax. That's where we're headed. So we need always to be asking, what is God up to in this grand story? In a post-Christian cultural world, speaking of the Old Testament conjures up images of opposition between old and new and unfortunate connotations of of out-of-date as if God's earlier revelation has been supplanted and rendered obsolete by later revelation. Or as some people say, the New Testament fixes the problem that is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is actually not a problem. Israel was a problem, but not the Testament itself. But the problems created by nomenclature, what we call stuff, are even more consequential when we speak of the segment of the First Testament we commonly call the law, as opposed to the historical books, the prophets, and the poetic books. What we call the Pentateuch, which means five books, the Hebrew canon appropriately names the Torah. Although the word Torah occurs 220 times in the First Testament, in 202 of these occurrences, the translators of the old Greek version rendered it as honomos, nomos. Whatever the original meaning of the Greek word by the 3rd century BC when the Septuagint was translated, nomos meant law. And this is how it's always translated in Deuteronomy where it appears 22 times. But these, occurrences of, but these occurrences of Torah in Deuteronomy are enough to establish what that word means. In this book, Torah never means law. The Greeks translated as nomos, we translated it as law. But it never means that in Deuteronomy. The noun comes from a verb, hora, to teach which occurs in many different forms. In Deuteronomy, it refers generally to Moses' final pastoral addresses to his congregations before his death. In Deuteronomy, he is not a legislator giving new laws. He's the pastor, having his final farewell address. He is doing in Deuteronomy what Jesus does in the upper room discourse with his disciples. I'm out of here. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he gives a long discourse, preparing the disciples for his departure, which is exactly what Moses is doing in this book. This is pastoral preaching at its absolute best. Well, the, uh, Moses' primary goal in the book is not to enact laws, but it's sermonic which he achieves with recollections of God's grace in the past, personal confessions, explicit exhortations, hypothetical scenarios that sets the stage for creedal-like responses. I mean, in chapter 6, he says, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the point of all these laws? Then you shall say. This is hardly the way laws are written. This is how preachers talk, and it's that way all the way through the book. He gives all sorts of instructions concerning civic and religious leaders, promises of restoration after seeming inevitable judgment, uh, curses, not because God likes to beat up on people. But because he is so passionate about his relationship with his people, he said, don't go there. Don't go after other gods. This is what will happen to you. It's a pastor talking. Moses is the pastor. Don't go there. And that's why he begins chapter 28 with a profuse promises of blessing. That's how it begins. Moses' role in the book is that of a pastor. Indeed, the only epithet that's used of him is prophet. Now, the verbs of Moses' action in the book all the way through reinforce the didactic rather than legal nature of the book. And so let's get rid of those words, those concepts, and let's go to what the Greek and the English should have done from the very beginning. In the book of Deuteronomy, the word the Torah has exactly the same semantic range as Didache and Didascalia teaching instruction in the New Testament. And I wonder what the history of interpretation or the shape of the church would be like if the translators of the Greek Bible had followed the Hebrew and rendered the book with hoilogoi, the words. That's how Deuteronomy is named at the beginning. Or, Hey didache, or Hey didascalia, instead of ta deuteronomion. Second law. That'll kill it. What you call something matters. And it has a, had a deadening effect, not only on the book of Deuteronomy, but the whole Pentateuch and the whole First Testament. The misperception of the genre of Deuteronomy was extended when the epithet Torah was applied to the whole Pentateuch. If Torah uh, means law, Genesis is a real problem. Somebody didn't know what they were doing. Huh? How much of Genesis is law? Maybe two verses. Whoever sheds human blood by a human shall his blood be shed. And for Abraham, circumcision. Other than that, where are the laws? And even Exodus, Exodus consists primarily of narratives. Chapter 12 to 13, 20 to 23 are maybe legal in nature. They probably, they actually are. But when you come to the instructions for the tabernacle, that's not law the way we understand law. These are instructions for a one off project. When you go and buy your, fav- your furniture at your favorite store, Ikea, it comes in a box all wrapped and it's always heavy because it's made of very heavy, which must mean good material. But in any case, you, you have to assemble it all yourselves. But thankfully, it usually comes with instructions. You never call that little book manual of instructions how to put this thing together. You wouldn't call that law. But that's what the instructions about the tabernacle are about. These are instructions on how to build a palace, a portable palace for the Lord. Modern day appeals by some to unhitch the First Testament from Christian faith are the legacy of the early Greek translation of Torah as nomos, which set the course of history of interpretation of Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the First Testament as a whole in a very Problematic direction. But now those ruts are very deep. And I sometimes feel like I am trying to swim up the Niagara Falls when I propose another, dare we call it, more grace and gospel-oriented understanding of the First Testament. Andy Stanley doesn't get it. Given our society's worship of novelty and rejection of antiquity, the first step in resurrecting the First Testament and making it vital to evangelical faith is to abandon the designation Old Testament and replace it with a title that reflects the unity of Scriptures, the singularity of God's redemptive plan. And given the misonomistic disposition, that's a lovely word, I manufactured it myself. <laughs> we talk about misogynistic, anti-women kinds of dispositions. Well, here, misonomistic means anti-law dispositions. In evangelical Christianity, this misonomistic disposition is widespread. Yesterday we talked, we we sang about free from the law, oh happy condition. Really? The law was the greatest grace that God could have given Israel once he had got them out of Egypt. And that's exactly how it's presented in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Translations that continue to render the word uh, Torah as law lead people astray. They may introduce readers and hearers to the law and merit-based world of Second Temple Judaism... But they do not introduce them to the Torah proclaimed by Moses, which leads me to the seventh point. We need to rethink our understanding, uh, interpretation of Paul and his disposition toward the law. This is an extremely important point, and I'll get there tomorrow as God wills. Let's pray. gracious Heavenly Father we thank you that you have given your Son Jesus Christ our Savior as the embodiment of the grace of your heart and the faithfulness your faithfulness to your covenant promises we pray oh Lord that you would resurrect the written word of God all of it that you might resurrect us And quicken us who are dead in our trespasses and in our sins and who are dead in our minds because we do not see the grace that you have revealed to us in the Scriptures, all the Scriptures. So we pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and soften our hearts to receive for the glory of the Son, your Son, whose name we bear. We ask it. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.